Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, my finest friends. Welcome to the second episode of the fifth season of the Tom Petty Project podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Brown. Uh, This is the podcast that digs into the entire Tom Petty catalogue song by song, album by album, and includes conversations with musicians, fans, and people connected with Tom along the way. Today's episode looks at the second track from Long After Dark, You Got Lucky. Uh, There's a link to the song in the episode notes, so if you're not familiar with the track, go give it a listen and then come back before we start the dissection. Ben Mont was really angry about the synthesizer. It was one of the only times we've used a synthesizer. He didn't want to do it. This is what Tom tells Paul Zolo in Conversations with Tom Petty, and the thing that really jumps out at you as soon as this song kicks in is that it sounds completely different to anything we've heard from Tom to this point. The music was written by Mike Campbell over top of a drum loop he'd created on his drum machine in his home studio. I imagine this was the, at the time quite new, Lynn drum, which would go on to be the sound of the 80s featuring on songs like Axel F from Beverly Hills Cop, um, Frankie Goes to Hollywood's Relax, as well as music by Prince, Devo, Peter Gabriel, Fleetwood Mac, and composer John Carpenter. Uh, you Got Lucky was the first single released from Long After Dark and was released two weeks before the album on October 22nd, 1982. The single reached number 20 on the Billboard chart and number one on the US rock charts, which is somewhat curious as it's probably the least rock and roll sounding single up to that point. The B-side was the penultimate track from the album and another Mike Campbell musical contribution, Between Two Worlds. The song starts, as so many Heartbreakers songs from this era start, with a fill-in from Stan Lynch. There's also a vocal two count from Tom in a single bar intro. The original demo was recorded on Mike Campbell's drum machine, as I said, and this loop was then replicated in the studio with Stan playing over top of it. This gave Jimmy Iovine two drum tracks effectively, um, which allows the rhythmic dynamic to change during the song. The use of a drum machine likely didn't sit well with Stan at all, and the control issues that had been brewing over the years definitely started to simmer over during the sessions for this album. John Paulson and I will get into that a little more for the album rap, but I usually tend to side a little more with the drummer when it comes to something like this. You can tell that that kick-snare pattern, and most definitely the hi-hat line, which never changes velocity or volume through the track, is pulled from that drum loop, and it's not Stan playing live. It does give the groove of the song a very metronomic, menacing quality, though, that undeniably works. And that persistent hat lift on the third beat of every bar and obviously the sample click of the closed hat keeping double time just gives it that machine-like quality. And my guess is that those three parts, the kick, snare and hi-hat, would be the machine, the drum machine, and then the tom fills and the rest of the cymbals are what you mainly hear from Stan in the final mix. It could also have his snare coming through in the chorus as that sounds slightly beefier. Um, it would be a really cool one, again, to sit down and listen to from the master tapes as there's there's definitely plenty of production on this one. The drums don't actually change through the first two and a half minutes of this song with only the occasional transition fill or cymbal hit in the chorus. Uh, there is a second loop which comes in at the 240 mark with some booming floor tom hits and what sounds like heavily echoed hand claps and sort of other bits of percussion. While we're talking about the rhythm section, there's a glorious high bass note that Howie Epstein plays on the one count of the second bar, which he lets hang for two full measures before stepping back down for two measures. And this four-bar phrase is then repeated and leads into the first verse. During the verses, the bass then holds down the groove by playing a stabbed pattern that leads into the one of each bar before dropping back out to open up the bottom end. Howie then sustains those bass notes on the low register in the four-bar pre-chorus to take us into that initial major chord. And it's another expression I've probably used a lot without talking about it um, pre-chorus. If you're not sure what that is, it's usually a section that leads from the verse to the chorus that doesn't really follow the chord progression or the tone or both uh, of either the verse or the chorus. 
So the section where Tom sings go, yeah, go, it just feels different, right? So the bass, guitar, and synth all go to sustained chords, and that change from A minor to F leads nicely into that C major of the, of the chorus. So that section acts like a short bridge between the verse and the chorus, and that's typically called a pre-chorus. So after that pre-chorus, how he stays on those sustained notes and basically sits on the root notes of each chord before falling back into that stabbed pattern in the verse again. So a really simple but effective rhythm section to this one, which sits in the pocket and doesn't take any of the limelight from the synth and the vocal, which are the real stars of this song. So let's talk about that synth that Benmont hated so much. When you're a rock and roll purist like Benmont, it's easy to see why you wouldn't necessarily want to use a synth. One of my other top three favourite bands of all time, Queen, famously added the line, no synthesizers, usually with an exclamation point, to each of their first seven albums. And it was seen as somehow straying away from the rock and roll integrity um, that serious musicians held to. And it's something I must admit that I like about 70s rock. It just sounds like four or five guys making music on real instruments. However, when it's used sparingly and well, as Queen often failed to manage, uh, it can definitely add a very specific vibe to a song, and I think that's most definitely true of You Got Lucky. I tend to agree with Tom when he tells Paul Zolo, I don't see them as taboo, I don't see anything as taboo, I think if it's getting the job done, it's okay with me. And he goes on to say of Benmont, he begrudgingly played it, and I'm glad he did because it was a hit record. The rhythm synth part itself is fairly simple, with lots of suspended chord stabs played around that minor key progression, and a restless movement that never seems to fully settle until the chorus comes in. There's also that second lead line that in another arrangement could have been played by Mike Campbell or could have been played on organ by Benmont rather than synth. And it cuts out in the first four bars of the verse before coming back in again, somewhat surprisingly in the second four bars. The keyboard space, the, the sort of sonic space that the keyboard holds, is really full in the chorus. And I suspect that in addition to the synth playing either, it's probably the barred fifth chords or maybe full chords, um, and the guitar opening up, I'm pretty sure there's also an organ added in there too. Mixed fairly low, as you can hear the tremolo after Tom sings, You Got Lucky Babe. I can't quite tell, but I think the synth actually drops out in the second half of that section. You know, the, the, the sort of second four bars of the chorus. It's mixed quite tightly into that upper mid-frequency though, so it's a little harder to separate those sounds out. Like the rhythm section, the synth and organ parts are repeated with little to no deviation throughout each section of the song. And the solo section follows the verse chord pattern, uh, as does the outro, so once you've listened to that verse, pre-chorus, chorus progression once, you know what's going to happen throughout the rest of the song. And sometimes this could lead to a song being a little stale or... I hate to use the word boring, but, you know, that sort of, if it gets a little bit monotonous, you can sometimes lose interest. But it's definitely important in this track because it sets that ambiance perfectly. And I think we'll talk a little bit more about that when I talk about the music video later. So a guitar song, this isn't. But what Mike adds in becomes important because he's the one adding those little bits of color and break from that repetition that give the song more width than it would otherwise have. Beginning in the second half of the intro, Mike starts to add in those little licks and background phrases, bending around that lead synth that Benmont is playing. And as we go into the verse, he sits back and plays a lot less. And there's some heavily muted, sort of syncopated chugging mixed down low. And I'm not sure if that's Tom or Mike, as it sounds initially like there's only one guitar. And on the live versions, Tom doesn't really appear to be playing in those sections. You can hear these parts much more clearly when the song is played live. And I'll definitely add a link to a live version of the song so you can see how much different it does sound. Through the pre-chorus, it sounds like he's simply playing a really low single bass note, which into that chorus resolved into some cleaner, broken chords. And you can, again, you can hear that single string bass note that it, that's being played really clearly after Tom sings, You Got Lucky Babe, boom, boom. You Got Lucky Babe, boom, boom. And again, there's a lovely little fill after Tom sings, You Turn Your Eyes Away in the second verse, higher up the neck. And Mike is again just adding those little touches to back up the melody and give a little bit of color to the song. 
The solo is really unique to this song, and quite unlike anything else I can remember Mike playing ever, really. Um, in a 2003 interview with Song Facts, Mike says of this part, uh, the guitar solo was Tom's idea. He suggested we do an Ennio Morricone guitar sound, kind of a vibrato arm strat kind of solo, like a Clint Eastwood movie. It was Tom's idea to put that approach in there. Again, this approach really adds to the oppressive tone of the song. Mike then reprises parts of the solo and builds on it during the outro. When it's almost faded out, he plays a couple of hammer-on pull-offs that really remind me of Mark Knopfler from uh, Dire Straits. It's certainly a style you can imagine Knopfler employing. And again, check out that live version I'm going to post as Mike plays a fantastic, heavily sort of bluesy solo. Oh, and in that live in, that live version, wait for the outro. Killer. <laughs> Alrighty, well, you know what it's time for. It's time for some petty trivia. Your question from last week was this. One Story Town is the shortest track on Long After Dark, but which is the shortest opening track on any Heartbreakers or solo record? This answer stumped a few people, and I think maybe some of you didn't read or listen to the question quite closely enough. The shortest song on any studio album is the instrumental Airport, which closes the She's the One album and is under a minute long. If you're looking at the overall shortest non-instrumental song, that would be All Right For Now from Full Moon Fever at 2 minutes even. The shortest single is I Need To Know, which flies in at 2.24. But the shortest opening song, the first song on the album, is from the debut record, Rocking Around With You, which comes in at 2 minutes 29 seconds. So well done to everyone who got that one. There were some people who guessed that one correctly. And I didn't put a poll up this weekend because I, well, basically I just forgot. So I apologize for that. I will get another poll up sometime. Um, your question for this week is even trickier. And this one's, this one's a deep dive and this is for real petty heads. In 1988, Tom sang backing vocals on Joni Mitchell's Dancing Clown from the album Chalk Mark in a Rainstorm. Can you tell me which other iconic 80s rocker also appeared on that song? <laughs> Okay, back to the song. I really, really like the vocal on this track. It harks back to the first record in some ways for me, bringing to mind the sort of tightly controlled howl of The Wild One or Fooled Again. And you then get the first instance of Howie singing high harmonies, possibly along with Stan too. Through the verses, Tom's employing a half-imploring, half-threatening delivery. In the choruses, it's a far purer tone that he uses. So again, the instrumentation is leaving enough space in that section to allow Tom to change the dynamic of the song with his vocal delivery. Marvellous arrangement, great production. Tom has been quoted in the past as not particularly liking Long After Dark, and in Warren Zane's biography, the author makes the following observation. He says he doesn't like Long After Dark, but what he doesn't like is the world he was living in during that period of time. The songs tell the story of that place more directly than the material on any previous recording. Zanes goes on to describe Tom as a man who didn't want to be in his marriage but didn't know how to leave it. In several places on this album, those cracks in Tom's relationship with his first wife Jane are really evident, and this song is not drenched in ambiguity in what Tom is trying to say. If you can do better than me, go. And in the second verse, you put your hand on my cheek and then you turn your eyes away. These are pretty fresh wounds that Tom's exposing through his music for maybe the first time, really. Um, that fantastic chorus line, too. Good love is hard to find. You got lucky, babe, when I found you. It's almost like a combative first strike from a wounded animal and one that hits home really directly. 
a song about heartbreak, but this time it feels a hell of a lot more personal, and that's why I think it feels much more powerful. You Got Lucky, that phrase You Got Lucky, is also one of the most frequently quoted lyrics by Pettyheads, and whenever someone unearths a rare treasure and sort of shares photos of it online, someone will inevitably quote it in the comments. It's one of those lines that just resonates with people and sticks in their heads. Um, Before we start to wrap up, I wanted to say a few words about the fantastic video for this song. Um, When MTV really started to blow up, they were... You know, they needed lots and lots of videos and lots of content to put on the channel. Uh, And this song was on regular rotation, Um, you know, all through the first two, three, four years of MTV. The band conceived of the idea for this video and based the dystopian aesthetic around Mad Max 2, which would probably fall almost into the steampunk category these days. Um, In the 2011 book covering the history of MTV by Craig Marks, Tom is quoted as saying, that was when we really saw MTV change our daily lives. Not only were teenagers spotting me on the street, older people would spot me too. We knew it was big. He also tells Mark that he received a phone call from the king of pop himself, Michael Jackson, who would also go on to produce one of the biggest videos of the MTV era in Billie Jean, and Jacko told him that he thought the Mad Max theme was an incredible idea. You know, predating Queen's I Want to Break Free and Die Straight's Money for Nothing, it was one of the first truly ambitious music videos, and unlike other iconic videos of the time, such as Madonna's Material Girl or Dave Lee Ross' Just a Gigolo, it wasn't just a glitzed-up musical performance. In fact, the only time you see an instrument in the whole thing is when Mike finds the guitar in the shack that forms the central location for the video. You know, and with the TV array showing all sci-fi movies and a couple of clips of the Heartbreakers playing live alongside the likes of Chuck Berry, there's a very definite retro vibe that kind of feels like someone's, you know, stumbled onto the Back to the Future set after it's been abandoned for 100 years. You know, we then see the Space Invaders machine and Tom twirling his pistol before the, the five men head back out on the road, Mike clutching his newly found guitar. It's an abstract mini-movie that runs for over a minute before the music kicks in at all. The Heartbreakers brought in director Jim Lenahan, who had previously worked with them on The Waiting and Insider, and would go on to direct the equally captivating and original Running Down a Dream video towards the end of the decade, as well as Jamming Me. The video also notably features an early appearance, I'm not sure if it's the first appearance, I'd, maybe I'd put that to the petty heads to see if anyone knows, but it's certainly an early appearance of Tom's later trademark top hat. It's not quite a full top hat, but you know what I mean. And hats in general will be a prominent part of several videos in the years to come. All in all, it's safe to say that this video was a big deal for Tom and the band and remains a fan favourite to this day. Okay, folks, that's all for this week. Uh, Tom tells Paul Zolo that while it's not one of his favourite compositions, it's just kind of a love song, he goes on to say, you know what the song is? It's a perfect little single. When I hear it on the radio, I think, wow, we really just filled every little space in the right way. And when I think about the arrangement of this song, you know, with the synths leading, Mike filling in those gaps with artfully placed licks, and Tom soulfully ripping his heart out for the audience, I think he's dead on with that assessment. The oppressive mechanical despondency in the tone of this one make it completely unique to the Heartbreakers catalogue, and it sits for me with Don't Come Around Here No More as one of a couple of songs only that, to me, have, a, have sort of a distinctly 80s feel, and yet don't sound too dated. They stand up, you know, unlike some of the things on maybe Let Me Up I've Had Enough, uh, which we'll get into in a few months. As always, when I'm trying to rate Tom's songs, I tend to start from a 10 and work down rather than starting from a zero and working up, taking away points where I feel things could have been done differently or better maybe. So I think that as Tom says, it's a fantastic pop song, a great single, and has no fat to trim really. 
My only criticism is that I think maybe Stan could have played the drum part and elevated the song a little bit. And as you'll hear if you listen to the live version, the track doesn't suffer at all for being played on live drums. And according to setlist.fm at least, it's the 18th most played live song in the Heartbreakers catalogue. So I'm going to give You Got Lucky a 9 out of 10. I don't think it belongs right at the very top table of petty songs, but it's one of the standouts on a strong album for me. Please remember that you can continue to support humanitarian efforts in the Ukraine in many different ways, and I would urge you to do so if you have the means. As always, I've added a link to the Red Cross donation page in the episode notes, and I will continue to do so. Uh, The Tom Petty Project is a proud member of the Deep Dive Podcast Network, so if you like nerding out over your favourite bands, go check them out on Twitter, at Deep Dive Podnet, and see if there's a podcast dedicated to your favourite artist or band. Don't forget to follow me on Facebook and Instagram at The Tom Petty Project and on Twitter at Tom Petty Project. And of course, you can find me on YouTube. So go follow, like, subscribe as applicable and please leave a review or a rating if you haven't. Um, I've seen some really nice reviews coming in and I very, very much appreciate those. So thank you to um, to everyone who's, who's left one already. And again, keep talking to me on social media. Um, I do like the conversation and Twitter seems to be where all the rage is at these days. But um, Twitter and Facebook both have been have been quite good. And I, I really enjoy sort of meeting you guys and talking to you about what you're hearing on the podcast or your your stories about Tom Petty and, and, and everything in between. Um, the Tom Petty Project is not affiliated with the Tom Petty Estate in any way. And when you're looking for Tom's music, please visit the official YouTube channel first or go to the legal streaming services like, you know, um, Amazon Prime, Spotify, Apple Music. You know, you know where you get your legal music. And if you want merchandise, go to TomPetty.com. That is the only place where you'll find official Tom Petty merchandise. Don't forget to check out the Tom Petty Nation and Tom Petty Fans Forever groups on Facebook. If you're not already a member of those, as they're excellent fan communities and they are well worth hanging out in. And you'll also get to meet my friend Gwen Jones, who is one of the most magnificent human beings on this planet. Until we meet again next week, keep listening to and sharing Tom's music. Try to be kind. Try to say I love you to someone at least once a day. Stay safe and healthy, and I'll be back with you next week to dig into the third song from this album, the upbeat rocker, Deliver Me. Bye-bye.